Welcome to Madison Church Online with Exchange. My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor of Madison Church, and I'm so glad that you are able to join us from wherever you're joining us today. Kind of one of the cool things about everything that we're going through is that we can have dozens, if not hundreds, of locations all over Madison, Wisconsin, the United States, from people watching from different devices in different ways. And so uh, we're really, really excited about that. The church isn't limited to a building. We are not defined by a service. We're so glad that you guys could all be with us. We hope that you join the chat room uh, so that way we can discuss with you. We don't want this just to be about the content, but also about the community and also about the connection. Well, I want to begin this message with a couple of questions I know everyone will be absolutely eager to answer, okay? But first, I want you to just imagine with me for a moment. It is a Monday morning. It is after a great long three-day weekend. You had so much fun, but it's Monday morning now and you're driving work. Of course, this is long after the pandemic we are currently in, and you are dragging. And so you've got to make a stop for a quick pick-me-up. You need a coffee. And so that's kind of my first question for you is where are you stopping? Coffee drinkers, on that Monday morning when everything is going so slow, where are you stopping to get that cup of coffee? Maybe it's a big chain like Starbucks, or perhaps it's a local favorite like Madison's Crescendo. Where are you going to get that drink? But the second question, the question I bet that you're even more excited to answer or to tell us is, what are you getting to drink? What are you getting to drink? Is it a medium black coffee or a Trenta unicorn frappuccino? I mean, we're going to learn so much about each other by the way that we answer these questions. Um, now, of course, I, I, I know that there are tea drinkers watching, unfortunately, right now, um, and they will tell us who they are. They will let us know that we forgot about them and that, in their opinion, tea is far superior than coffee, and, and they're wrong. Okay, let's move on. There's, I'm not just telling you all of this so you know a bunch of random stuff about coffee. I do have a purpose for all of this, and I want to talk to you about an extremely rare coffee bean called the Kopi Lua. The Kopi Lua. Some of you might have heard about this, but if you haven't, I'm going to tell you all about it. It is the most expensive coffee bean in the world. For a one-pound bag, it is going to set you back $500. $500 for a one-pound bag, and that's because it's just really rare. There are less than 300 pounds of this coffee produced every single year. It's considered by many coffee snobs the most exquisite, most exotic, and complex-tasting coffee in the world. But coffee lovers, don't blow your paycheck just yet on this bag of coffee. Let me explain to you how Kopi Lua is produced it comes to us basically from a two-step process, and most of the work is done by an Asian palm civet, okay? This is a wild cat that is uh, quite the coffee snob as well. The civet wanders around at night looking for only the most perfect coffee bean cherries to eat. So all night, if it's not the best, it's going to just pass it on and just keep looking for the perfect coffee cherries um, to eat. Like I said, it's coffee snob. And from there, it eats these cherries. And then the, the, the coffee beans, the cherries are fermented in its intestines. And then the beans are collected from fecal matter after they defecate about 24 hours later. Um, if you're looking for a new job, I heard that they're always hiring people to help with this part of the process, okay? 
Now, as disgusting as that sounds, and I'll admit, it sounds super gross. Aren't you glad that you didn't go off and buy that just yet? Okay. Remember that this is the rarest and most expensive coffee bean in the entire world. It is so valuable that there are tons of con artists out there who will try to sell you a counterfeit product. If you're going to buy this coffee, there's actually only one place in the entire world that you can order it from, and it's certified, so you know it's the real thing. Also, and sadly, the wildcat that I was telling you about is now endangered because people are hunting it in order that they might be able to replicate this costly coffee. And again, I'm not telling you all of this because you need to know a bunch of stuff about coffee, but because, you know, it's a literal reminder that something really, really good and something really, really valuable can come out of the stuff in our lives. Even the worst and grossest stuff, something good can come out of that. And that's my segue into today's message, which is our final part of our series, That's Messed Up, where we've learned about the amazing life of Joseph from the Old Testament. He put up with a lot of stuff, and and God is about to make all of the things that he put up with worthwhile. Um, As a lot of series that we have done in the Old Testament, we've covered a ton of material in a short period of time. And if you're joining us for the first time today, no worries. I will catch you up with the highlights here, the things you need to know for today so you don't feel like you're missing out on anything. Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons in the family of Jacob, and it's easy to get lost in that big of a family, but not Joseph. Uh, Joseph was actually his father's favorite. That detail is in the Bible for the entire world to see. It was not a secret that Joseph was his father's favorite. And yes, that made Joseph arrogant, and he was a little ignorant. I mean, what teenager isn't both of those things? But he didn't deserve what happened to him next in the story. One day, his brothers plotted and executed a plan, first to try to kill him, but then they ended up selling him into slavery. That was their more merciful option. Again, he No one deserves that. Joseph from there becomes the slave of a prominent government figure in Egypt. And although he does no wrong, he serves his master really well, actually. He is accused of sexual assault, falsely accused of sexual assault on this guy's wife. So now he goes to jail for a crime that he didn't commit. And in jail, God gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And so um, one of the guys that he interprets the dream for gets out of prison, becomes one of Pharaoh's cup bearers. But the cup bearer who promised to tell Pharaoh about Joseph forgot. And so we see that Joseph over and over and over again has something bad happen to him and then a little bit of glimmer of hope and then something worse happens to him and a little bit more hope. And then yet again, something worse happens. And where we're picking up Joseph today is that he is alone. He has forgotten. He has had a hard, long life and he is in prison. All of this is messed up. But throughout his story, we did learn a lot about perseverance. We learned a lot about integrity. And I would encourage you to go back and check those messages out on YouTube because there is some really good stuff in there. In the first week of the series, I talked about God's promises, but I said God had these promises for Joseph's life, but we wouldn't get to those promises. Those promises wouldn't be answered until the last week of the series. And now here we are, the last week of the series, when we get to talk about how God kept his promises to Joseph. God never, ever forgot about Joseph. When Joseph was thrown down into a well and sold into slavery by his brothers, God was with Joseph. And when Joseph was falsely accused of sexual assault, God was with Joseph again. And even though everyone else forgot about Joseph, God was with him and Joseph was 
with God. We're told in Genesis 41 that while Joseph sits in prison, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, had a couple of dreams that really troubled him. And so he summons all of the men in Egypt who might be able to help him interpret what these dreams mean come to him, but none of them are able to give Pharaoh an adequate answer. It's then that the cupbearer remembers Joseph from prison. He goes back and says, oh yeah, I met this guy, Joseph. He interpreted my dream. You should go and get him. So Pharaoh does just that. He sends for Joseph. Joseph comes to him. Pharaoh tells Joseph about the dreams. And yet again, God gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams. This wasn't something that Joseph did on his own. He wasn't just guessing. He wasn't had this special power, but it was rather a gift that God gave him to interpret those dreams. And so Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And uh, he tells Pharaoh that there's what the dreams mean is that there will be seven years of abundant harvest in Egypt. There will be more food growing than anyone could possibly eat. But then there will be seven really, really bad years of famine, that this famine would actually devastate the world. After giving the interpretation, Joseph tells Pharaoh, you know, maybe the thing that you want to do is to put together a program and put someone in charge of that program to save up food for the next seven years to prepare for those last seven years. And uh, Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph's ability that he tells Joseph in Genesis 4, 41, starting with verse 39, since God has made all of this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Well, just in a matter of moments, Joseph's in prison, sitting by himself, long forgotten, and now he is the second most powerful man in the world for that period in history. I mean, just what a change of scenery for him. And so what Joseph predicted would happen through God's help actually did happen. There were seven years that were really great. And Joseph made sure that the Egyptians saved and stored the food. And then it followed by uh, a famine that uh, really, really hurt the world. And, and countless lives here are saved because of Joseph. And so what ends up becoming, what ends up happening is that people are migrating all over the world to whoever has food. And, and how could they have known that, you know, there was going to be this really bad famine all over the world? Well, unless God told you about a dream. And so they're all coming to Egypt to get food and Joseph is helping take care of those people. And then lo and behold, wouldn't you know that one day it's Joseph's brothers who come to Egypt looking for something to eat. And this is where the story gets super interesting because Joseph immediately recognizes them, but his brothers do not recognize Joseph. Joseph goes ahead and he keeps his identity concealed. He's having a little fun with his brothers. We can understand that. And he starts messing around with them. I mean, after all, they did almost kill him and then sell him into slavery. They kind of deserve something getting thrown back at them. Well, first he accuses his brothers of being spies and they say, no, no, we're not spies. We are a 10 of 12 brothers. Um, the reason that there are only 10 of them is because we left one at home with dad and we sold the other one into slavery a long, long time ago. Well, that's accurate. Checks out. But Joseph pretends not to believe them and he has them thrown into jail. I mean, what younger sibling doesn't love this part of the story? Joseph's just a little mad here. So he throws them in jail for a few minutes and then he opens it up and says, I'm just kidding, guys. It's me. Uh, no, actually, it turns out Joseph was kind of really mad. He leaves his brothers in jail for three days, just leaves them in there, and then he kind of casually comes back and lets them out, and he says he's going to send 
most of the brothers home to go get that other one. And he says, unless you come back with the youngest son, I will think that you are lying. And then you're all going to pay the price. So they have to go home and get that last brother and come back to convince Joseph, convince Joseph that they're not spies, even though he knows that they're not. Well, the brothers huddle up and they start speaking in their native tongue. They don't know that Joseph can speak their native tongue. Remember, they don't recognize him. And the older brother really just starts laying into the others for what they did to Joseph Joseph years and years ago, saying that what's happening now to them is because of what they did to Joseph. And as his brothers are fighting, Joseph actually becomes overwhelmed with emotion. We read that he turns around, he breaks down, he starts crying. He's actually got to leave the room because of how overwhelmed he is. Now, eventually, Joseph does stop messing around with his brothers, and he reveals who he is. And if they weren't already freaked out enough, like before when when this guy who's second in command thought we were spies and, and were kind of freaking out about it, well, now they're really freaked out. You mean that the brother that they tried to kill and then they sold into slavery is the second most powerful man in the world? Boy, How did that happen? They're for sure that they're going to be killed now. But instead of retaliating like they expected, Joseph actually reaches out and wants to reconcile the relationship with his brothers. Um, Though he was the one who was wronged, Joseph reaches out to them and he says, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourself for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. Joseph shows immense amount of grace, love, and forgiveness. He extends compassion toward his brothers who frankly didn't deserve it. But that's what God does for all of us. He shows us grace, love, and forgiveness, even though we don't deserve it. Now, it's important that I want to point out just briefly here that this passage is not saying that God was behind everything. Some people will read this passage and think that Joseph is making an abstract theological case for that God was behind everything, determined everything, and and there was no free will at all in this situation. And it's not that. Actually, if we're just reading this, Joseph is being very real. He's being very personal. He's saying that despite the choices, the bad choices that all of these people have made for the last several years and decades that have harmed me, God blessed what others intended to be a curse. God blessed what others intended to be a curse. Joseph sees God redeeming every messed up thing that happened in his life, bringing more good. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Every time something bad happened to Joseph, God had something better planned for him. And then when something bad happened, God had something better planned for him. God was constantly active and working in the life of Joseph. Now, whether what has happened to you is the result of some bad decisions you made or some bad decisions that somebody else has made, we want to believe and we should believe that God can take care of all of it. That God will work it out for your good, for my good, and for our good. I bet that the themes that we have talked about, some of the the stories that we've talked about in this series have resonated with many of you. It's not just an old story from thousands and thousands of years ago that we're talking in church. 
it's your life in 2020. It's probably easy for most of us to relate to the tough parts in the story. Um, you made a bad financial decision, for example, maybe this is you, that you made a bad financial decision and it's still costing you money and happiness years and years later. You got a bad diagnosis or worse yet, you're sick, but there is no diagnosis, there is no treatment, there's no medicine, there's no way to feel better. You just feel sick all the time. Well, you're not sure when it all began, but life definitely has not gone the way that you thought it would, and you're not sure how God is using it. I mean, if you're being really, really honest right now, you're not even sure if God is using it. Well, I want to offer us today two little bits of biblical advice that I know can change your situation and circumstances, no matter what it is that you are going through, no matter how messed up it is with the help of the Holy Spirit. And the very first thing that I want to suggest that you need to do is to stand firm. James, the brother of Jesus, writing to a very persecuted church in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus dies, people, people who are um, facing like major prison time and torture and death, he writes to them, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, there were plenty of times that Joseph could have stopped seeking and believing in God, but he didn't. Joseph stood firm, although everything that happened to him was so completely messed up, and it happened over the course of several decades. We today must stand firm. Perhaps like Joseph, you've experienced a deep betrayal by someone in your family. A parent left you long ago. A child has blocked you from their life now. A spouse was unfaithful, and the pain from what happened years ago still affects you today, like it happened just yesterday. Or maybe like Joseph, something that somebody else has done has caused you great harm. Somebody abused you as a child. Somebody assaulted you as an adult. You were treated unjustly and unfairly because of the color of your skin or your gender. You didn't deserve what happened to you, but you're nonetheless having to deal with the consequences of a choice that somebody else made. Maybe like Joseph, you feel forgotten. You feel unseen by everyone, including God. And you are in some ways a prisoner of your own mind, a prisoner of the anxieties and the depression that you have. We have to stand firm against those things. Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, that the devil's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so I want to ask you, what is stealing your joy today? What's been killing you on the inside? What makes you feel destroyed? You see, the advice, the things that I want to talk to you about isn't this is what you should do and this is how you should do it, but rather you just need to stand firm. It's both really easy advice and very difficult advice at the same time. There are no gimmicks. And yeah, some churches have gotten really creative with how to handle spiritual warfare. But from the verses that we read of Jesus and his brother James, and when we look over the story of Joseph, what we see isn't a way to fight against the devil, but rather it is to stand firm against him. Stand firm against the pain that was caused by that family member so that it doesn't steal future relationships from you. Stand firm against the suffering brought on by someone else, that they, something else that they did to you so that it doesn't kill your future plans. Stand firm against the toxic thoughts so that your purpose isn't destroyed. 
Stand firm against the things that come to steal, kill, and destroy, and they will flee from you. Now you're probably wondering now, okay, Stephen, so you're saying if I just stand firm, all of my problems will eventually go away. And, and not quite. Some of you guys have a lot and lots of experience of ignoring and avoiding your problems for years and years. And you're, you can testify that those things usually get worse, not better. Okay, no. Standing firm is part one of the solution here. James addresses the very next part of it in the very next verse. He says, not only to resist the devil and he will flee from you, but he says, come close to God and he will come close to you. Did you notice the modification? With the devil, you just stand in place and he runs from you. You don't have to run from him. You don't have to attack him. If you stand in place, the devil runs from you. The modification that James makes, though, is he says, if you take a step toward God, God will take a step toward you. As I walk closer to God, God will walk closer to me. So we're going to stand against evil, and we're going to walk toward God. It goes hand in hand. I'd like to take a guess about you right now, no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter how messed up it is. I bet if you're a person of faith, your faith feels a little bit stagnant, maybe a little bit stuck, a little bit complacent over the last few months. I mean, the newness of online church has worn off for you. It's time, if that is you, to pray for a renewal. It's time to take a step toward God. It's not one step, but two steps, because when you take a step toward God, he takes a step toward you, and he is eagerly waiting for you to take that step. You might even be wondering right now, after months and months of being safer at home orders and not being allowed to go to work and all of the bad things that have been happening, you may be wondering if God has left you, but he has not left you. He is absolutely still there with you right now. Step toward God this week. Put a reminder in your phone to pause and pray. Read your Bible. Talk to your small group leader, your volunteer team leader. A small step toward God means God takes a step toward you. And similarly to James, Jesus contrasts the difference between the devil and him. And Jesus says, my purpose is to give people a rich and satisfying life. So stand firm against the pain that was caused by a family member so that it doesn't steal future relationships for you and walk toward God for a rich and satisfying life. Stand firm against the suffering brought on by something someone else did so that it doesn't kill your future plans and walk toward God for a rich and satisfying life. Stand firm against the toxic thoughts you get so that your purpose isn't destroyed and walk toward God for a rich and satisfying life. We need to trust that God can use our messed up situation and circumstances for good. God redeemed all of the messed up things that happened in Joseph's life, and he used them to save not just Joseph's life, not just to give Joseph a better life, but he used what happened in Joseph's life to save hundreds and thousands of lives. This was long before grocery stores and convenience stores. When there was a famine, people starved to death. God will redeem your situation like he redeemed Joseph's. Joseph walked with God. He stayed close to God through all of the challenges. Each time Joseph found himself in yet another predicament, he went to the one who he knew 
could turn his messed up situation into something extraordinary. Joseph knew that God doesn't make the horrible things happen to us. Those are the results of broken people doing broken things in a broken world. But God knew that he served a God that can fix broken people and broken things and the broken world. God has the power to overturn all of these things. And in just a matter of moments, after several decades of suffering, Joseph was elevated to the second highest and most powerful position in the entire world. But just like Joseph, we have to continue to trust God when we are locked in a prison, whether that's a real one or a metaphorical one, when it's hard to believe, when it's been years and years and years, and when the pain and suffering is just so real, we have to turn to God. And if we don't turn to God, we, friends, we are wasting our pain and suffering. And I can't think of anything that's more upsetting than not just having to go through those things, but to waste those things. Let's end on this. You're just coming out of a challenging time. You're about to head into one, or you're right in the middle of something that's really messed up. No matter who you are, no matter what job you go to or where you went to school, you're either coming out of something, you're in something, or you're going to be in something. But no matter what you're going through, let's reflect on how Paul writes it to the Romans. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. No matter what somebody's done to you or what you have done to somebody, God can redeem it. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. Your story isn't over yet. If you are watching or listening right now, no matter how bad life seems, your story isn't over yet. So resist the devil and come close to God because redemption is here.